Chapter Ten of Shorty McCabe by Sewell Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But say, I guess Buddy'll work out all right. There's good stuff in him. Anyways, I ain't losing my eyesight trying to follow his curves. And my date book's been full lately. That's the way I like it. If you know how to take things, there's a whole lot of fun in just being alive, ain't there? Now look at the buffo combination I've been up against. First off, I meet Jarvis. You know, Mr. Jarvis of Blenmont, who's billed to marry that English girl, Lady Evelyn, next month. Well, Jarvis, he was all waked up. Oh, you couldn't guess it in a week. It was an awful thing that happened to him. Just as he got his trunk packed for England, where the knot tines to take place, he gets worried that some old lady that was second cousin to his mother, or something like that, has gone and died and left him all her property. Real thoughtless of her, wasn't it, says I. Well, says Jarvis, looking kind of foolish, I expect she meant well enough. I don't mind the bonds and that sort of thing, but there's this nightingale cottage. Now what am I to do with that? Raise nightingales for trade, says I. Jarvis ain't one of the joshing kind, though, same as Pinckney. He had this wedding business on his mind, and there wasn't much room for anything else. Seems the old lady who'd quit living was a relative he didn't know much about. I remember seeing her only once, says Jarvis, and then I was a little chap. Perhaps that's why I wasn't a favorite of hers. She always sent me a prayer book every Christmas. Must have thought you was hard on your prayer books, says I. She wasn't batty, was she? Jarvis wouldn't say that, but he didn't deny that there might have been a few cobwebs in the belfry. Aunt Amelia... That's what he called her. Had lived by herself so long and had coaxed up such a case of noives that there was no telling. The family didn't even know she was abroad until they heard she died there. You see, says Jarvis, the deuce of it is, the cottage is just as she stepped out of it, full of a lot of old truck that I've either got to sell or boin, I suppose, and it's a beastly nuisance. It's a shame, says I, but where is this nightingale cottage? Why, it's in Primrose Park, up in Westchester County, says he. With that, I pricks up my ears. You know I've been putting my extra long green in pickle for the last few years, laying for a chance to place em where I could toin em over some day and count both sides. And Westchester sounded right. Say, says I, leading em over to the telephone booth, you sit down there and ring up some real estate guy out in Primrose Park and get a bid for that place. It'll be about half a two-thirds what it's worth. I'll give you that, and ten percent more on account of the fixin's. Is it a go? Was it? Mr. Jarvis had Central and was callin' up Primrose Park before I gets through, and inside of an hour I'm a taxpayer. I've made big lumps of money quicker than that, but I never spent such a chunk of it so swift before. But Jarvis went off with his mind easy, and I was satisfied. In the evening, I dropped around to see the Whaleys. Dennis, you low-county bog-trotter, says I. About all I've heard out of you since I was knee-high was how you was aching to quit the elevator and get back to digging and cutting grass, same's you used to do in the old sod. Now here's a chance to make good. Well, say, that was the only time I ever talked ten minutes with Dennis Whaley about being blackguarded. He'd been fired off the elevator the week before and had been job-hunting ever since. 
as for mother whaley when she saw a chance to shake three rooms back into fire escape for a place where the trees had leaves on em she up and cried into the corner beef and cabbage just for joy i'll send the keys in the morning says i then you two pack up and go there to nightingale cottage and open her up if it's fit to live in and you don't die of loneliness maybe i'll run up once in a while of a sunday to look you over you see i thought it would be a bright scheme to hang on to the place for a year or so before i tries to unload that gives the whaleys what they've been wishing for and me a chance to do the weekend act now and then of course i wasn't looking for no complications but they come along all right it was on a saturday afternoon that i took the plunge you know how quick this little old town can warm up when she starts we'd had the studio fans going all morning and the first shirtwaist lads was parading across forty-second street with their coats off and swifty'd made tracks for coney island when i remembers primrose park i'd passed through in expresses often enough so i didn't have to look it up on the map but that was about all when i'd spoiled the best part of an hour on a local full of commuters and low-cut highbrows who killed time playing whist and cussing the road i was dumped down at a cute little station about big enough for a lemonade stand as the cars went off i drew in a long breath say i got off just in time to escape being carried into connecticut i jumps into a canopy top surrey that looks like it had been stored in an open lot all winter and asked the driver if he knows where nightingale cottage is sure thing says he that's the place shorty mccabe's bought do tell says i well caught me out to the front gate and put me off it was a nice ride if it had been a mile longer i'd had facts enough for a town history driving a depot carriage was just a side issue with that primrose blossom convoicing was his long suit he tore off information by the yard and slung it over the seat back at me like one of these megaphone lecturers on the rubberneck wagons according to him aunt melly had been a good deal of a she-hermit why says he major coitus binger told me himself that in the five years he'd lived neighbors to her he hadn't seen her more than once or twice they say she hadn't been out of a yard for ten years up to the time she went abroad for her health and died of it anyone that could live in this town that long and not die couldn't have tried very hard says i who's this major binger oh he's a retired army officer the major is widower with two daughters says he singletons says i yep and likely to stay so says he about then he toins in between a couple of fancy stone gate posts twists around a cracked bluestone drive and lands me at the front steps of nightingale cottage for the kind it wasn't so bad one of those squatty bay-windowed affairs with the roof like a toboggan chute a porch that did almost a whole lap around outside and a cobblestone chimney that had vines growing up clear to the top and sure enough there was dennis whaley with his rake coming as near a grin as he knew how well he has me in tow in about a minute and i makes a personally conducted tour of me estate say all i thought i was getting was a couple of building lots but i'll be staggered if it wasn't a slice of ground most as big as madison square park with trees and shrubbery and posy beds and dinky little paths looping the loop all around out back was a stable and gooseberry bushes and a truck garden 
How's them for cabbages, says Dennis? They look more like boutonnieres, says I. But he goes on to tell us how they'd just been set out and wouldn't be life-size till fall. Then he shows the rows that he says was going to be praties and beans and so on, and he's as proud of the whole shooting match as if he'd done a miracle. When we got around to the front again, where Dennis laid out a pansy hop, I sees a little gathering over the front of the cottage next door. There were three or four gents and six or eight women folks. They was looking my way and talking all at once. Hello, says I. The neighbors seem to be holding a convention. Wonder if they're planning to count me in. I ain't more than got that out before one of the bunch cuts loose and heads for me. He was a nice-looking old duck with a pair of white chaunceys and a frosted chin-splitter. He stepped out brisk and swung his cane like he was on parade. He was got up in white flannels in a square-topped Panama, and he had a complexion of a good liver. I expect that this is Mr. McCabe, says he. You're a good guesser, says I. Come up on the front stoop and sit by. My name, says he, is Binger. Coitus Binger. What? Major Binger, late USA, says I, the man that did the stunt at the Battle of What-do-you-call-it? Mission Ridge, sir, says he, throwing out his chest. Sure, that was the place, says I. Well, well, who'd think it? I'm proud to know you. Put her there. With that, I had him going. He was up in the air, and before he'd got over it, I'd landed him in a porch rocker and chased Dennis in to dig a box of fumadors out of my suitcase. Ahem, says the Major, clearing his speech tubes. I came over, Mr. McCabe, on rather a delicate errand. If you're out of butter or want to touch me for a draw and a tea, speak right up, Major, says I. The pantry's yours. Thank you, says he, but it's nothing like that, nothing at all, sir. I came over as a representative of several citizens of Primrose Park to inquire if it is your intention to reside here. Oh, says I, you want to know if I'll join the gang? Well, seeing as you put it up to me so urgent, I don't care if I do. Of course, I can't sign as a regular, this being my first jab at the simple life, but if you can stand for a punk performance, I'll make it progressive euchre and croquet, and you can put me on the Saturday night sub list for a while anyway. Now, say, I was laying out to do the neighborly for the best that was in me, but it seemed to hit the major wrong. He turned about two shades pinker, coughed once or twice, and then got a fresh hold. I'm afraid you failed to grasp the situation, Mr. McCabe, says he. You see, we lead a very quiet life here in Primrose Park, a very domestic life. As for myself, I have two daughters. Cheek-cheek, Major, says I, poking him gentle in the ribs with me thumb. Don't you try to sick any goyles on me, or I'll take to the tall timber. I'm no ladies' man, not a little bit. Then the explosion came. For a minute I thought one of them Frisco ague spells had come east. The major turns plum color, blows up his cheeks and bugs his eyes out. When the language flows, it was like toining on a fire pressure hydrant. An assistant district attorney summoned up for the state in the moiter trial didn't have a look in with the major. What did I mean? Me, a roughhouse scrapper from the red light section, by buttoning into a peaceful community and insulting the oldest inhabitants. Didn't I have no sense of decency that I suppose respectable people were going to stand for such? Honest, that was the waste jolt I ever had. 
All I could do was to sit there with my mouth ajar and watch him prancing up and down, handing me the layout. Say, says I, after a bit, you ain't got me mixed up with Mark Duck or Patty the Gouge or Kangaroo Mike or any of that crowd, have you? You're known as Shorty McCabe, aren't you, says he. Guilty, says I. Then there's no mistake, says he. What will you take cash down for this property and clear out now? Say, Major, says I, do you think it would blight the buds or poison the air much if I hung on till Monday morning? That is, unless you've got the tar all hot and the rail ready. That fetched a grunt out of him. All we desire to do, sir, says he, is to maintain the respectability of the neighborhood. Do the other folks over there feel the same way about me, says I? Naturally, says he. Well, says I, I don't mind telling you, Major, that you've thrown the hooks into me good and plenty, and it looks like I'd have to make a new book. I didn't come out here to break up any peaceful community, but before I change my program, I'll have to sleep on it. Suppose you slide over again sometime tomorrow and your collar don't fit so tight, and then we'll see if there's anything to arbitrate. Very well, says he, does a salute to the colors and marches back stiff-kneed to tell his crowd how he'd read the riot act to me. Now say, I ain't one of the kind to lose sleep because the conductor speaks rough when I ask for a transfer. I generally take what's coming in grins. But this time I wouldn't have so joyful as I might have been. Even the sight of Mother Whaley's hot biscuits and hearing her singing Kushla Mavornine in the kitchen couldn't choke me up. I'd been keen for looking the house over and seeing what I'd got in the grab. But it was all off. Of course I knew I had the rights of the thing. I put down me good money, and there wasn't any rules that could make me pull it out. But I'd lived quite some years without shoving in where I knew I'd get the frigid countenance, and I didn't like the idea of beginning now. I couldn't go back on my record either. In my time, I've stood up in the ring and put out my man for two-thirds of the gate receipts. I ain't so proud of that now as I was once, but I ain't never had any call to be ashamed of the way I'd done it. What's more, no soubrette ever had a chance to call herself Mrs. Shorty McCabe, and I never let him put my name over the door for any Broadway jag parlor. You got to let every man frame up his own argument, though. If these Primrose Parkers had listed me for a tough citizen— that had come out to smash Crocky and keep the town constable busy, it wasn't my cue to hold any debate. All the campaign I could figure out was to back into the wings and sell to some well-behaved stockbroker or life insurance grafter. It was going to be tough on the Whaley's, though. I didn't let on to Dennis, and after supper we sat on the back steps while he smoked his cutty and gassed away about the things he was going to raise and how the flower beds would look in a month or so. About nine o'clock he showed me a place where I can turn in, and I listens to the roosters crowing most of the night. Next morning I had Dennis get me a Sunday paper, and after I'd read the sporting notes I turns to the suburban real estate ads. Why not own a home, most of them asks. I know the answer to that, says I. And say, a Lunapark Zulu that had strayed into young Rockefeller's Bible class would have felt about as much at home as I did there on my own porch. The old major was over on his porch, walking up and down like he was doing guard duty, and once in a while I could see some of the women folks taking a careful squint at me behind a window blind. 
If I'm ever quarantined, it won't be any new sensation. It wasn't exactly a wedding breakfast kind of a time I was having, but I didn't dodge it. I was just letting it soak in, for the good of me soul, as Father Connolly used to say, when I sees a pair of overfed blacks hitched to a closed carriage switch in from the pike and make for the majors. Company for dinner, says I. That's nice. I didn't get anything but a back view as he climbed out on the off side and was let in by the major. But you couldn't fool me on them short-legged baggy-kneed pants or the black griddle cake bonnet. It was my little old bishop that I keeps the fat off from with the medicine ball wake. Lucky he didn't see me, says I, or he'd haul it out and queered himself with the whole of Primrose Park. I was figuring on fading away to the other side of the house before he showed up again. But I didn't hurry about it, and when I looks up again, there was the bishop with them fat little fingers of his stuck out and a three-inch grin on his face piking across the road right for me. He'd come out the wigwag as driver, and getting his eyes on me, he waddles right over. I tried to give him the wink and shoo him off, but it was a no-go. Why, my dear professor, says he, walking up and giving me the inside brother grip with one hand and the old college trum shoulder pat with the other. I squints across the way, and there was the major and the goyles catching their breath and taking it all in, so I sees it's no use throwing a bluff. How's the bishop, says I? You've made a bad break, but I guess it's a bit too late to hedge. He only chuckles, like he always does. Your figures of speech, Professor, are too subtle for me as usual. However, I suppose you are as glad to see me as I am to find you. Just what I was meaning to spring next, says I, pulling up a rocker for him. We chins a while there, and the bishop tells me how he's been out to lay some cornerstone and thought he'd drop in on his old friend Major Binger. Well, well, what a charming place you have here, says he. You must take me all over it, Professor. I want to see if you've shown as good taste on the inside as you apparently have on the out. And before I has time to say a word about Jarvis's Aunt Mellie, he has me by the arm and we're headed for the parlor. I hadn't even opened the door before, but we blazes right in, run up the shades and throws open the shutters and stands by for a look. Say, it was worth it. That was the most ladyfied room I'd ever put me foot in. Foist place. I never see so many crazy-looking little chairs or bow-legged tables or fancy teacups before in my life. There wasn't a thing you could sit on without having to call the upholstery man in afterward. Even the gilt sofa looked like it ought to have been in a picture. But what had me button-eyed was the wall decorations. If I hadn't been riding on the sprinkler for so long, I thought it was time for me to hunt a DT institute right then. Foist off, I couldn't make em out at all. But after the shock wore away, I see they were dolls, dozens of em, hanging all over the walls in rows and clusters like ham in a pork shop. And say, that was the wooziest collection ever bunched together. They weren't ordinary Christmas tree dolls, the store kind. Every last one of em was homemade, white cotton heads with hand-painted faces. Course I tumbled. This was some of that half-batty Aunt Mellie's wake. This is what she put her time in, and she sure had produced. For face painting, it was well done, I guess, only she must have been shut up so long away from folks that she forgot just how they looked. Some of the heads had sunbonnets on, and some nightcaps, 
but they were all the same shape like a hard-shell clam flat side too the eyes were painted about twice life-size some rolled up some canted down some squintin sideways and a lot was just cross-eye there was green eyes yellow eyes pink eyes and the regular kinds they gave me the creeps when i turns around the bishop stands there with his mouth open why says he why professor that was as far as he could get he gasps once or twice and gets out something that sounds like remarkable truly remarkable that's the word says i i'll bet there ain't another like this in the country i i hope not says he no offense meant though do you er do this sort of thing yourself well i had to loosen up then i told him about aunt mellie and how i'd bought the place unsight and unseen and when he finds this was my first view of the parlor it gets him in the short ribs he has a funny fit every time he takes a look at them dolls he has another spasm i gets him out on the porch again and he sits there slapping his knees and wagging his head and wiping his eyes by and by the bishop calms down and says i've done him more good than a trip to europe you let me bring major binger over says he i want him to see these dolls you two are bound to be great cronies i've got my doubts about that says i but don't you go mixin up in this affair bishop i don't want to lug you in for any trouble with any of your old friends you couldn't stave the bishop off though he had to hear the whole yarn and the minute he gets it straight he jumps up being as a hot-headed old well says he catchin himself just in time the major has a way of actin foist and then thinkin it over i must have a talk with him i guess he did too for they were at it some time before the bishop waves bye-bye to me and drives off i'd just got up from one of mrs whaley's best chicken dinners when i hears a hurrah outside and horses stampin and horn tootin i rushes out front and there was pinckney sittin up on the coach box just pullin his leaders out of dennis's pansy bed there was about a dozen of his crowd on top of the coach included mrs dipworthy sadie sullivan that was and mrs twombley crane and a lot more hello shorty says pinckney is the doll exhibition still open if it is we want to come in they'd met the bishop see and he'd steered em along well say i might have begun the day kind of lonesome but it had a lively finish all right inside of ten minutes sadie has on one of mother whaley's white aprons and is taken charge she has some of them fancy tables and chairs lugged out to the porch and the first thing i knows i'm holdin forth at a pink tea that's the swellest thing of the kind primrose park ever got its eyes on End of chapter 10